Turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah. It's in the prophetic section of the Old Testament. I'll be reading Jonah 1, 1 through 3. Before we hear God's word read, let us go again to him in prayer, asking for his help. Oh God, we pray that through this prophet, you would speak to us, that through this prophetic book, you will reveal to us more and more life for our edification, for our salvation. We ask these things in the name of the prophet Jesus Christ. Amen. Jonah 1, 1 through 3, hear now the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. A few months ago, we worked our way in the evening through the book of Ruth. I don't remember how many messages we looked at, probably seven or so. And and in that time, we beheld the man Boaz. We considered Boaz an imperfect man, but one whom God used to point us to Jesus. There were many parallels between this man Boaz and the God-man Jesus Christ, and I won't rehearse them all here before you now. You can listen to those sermons. But one of the parallels was how Boaz treated Ruth, which shows us how Christ treats the church, how tender-hearted Christ is toward the church. And that is one way that we can draw proper parallels proper connections between Old Testament figures and Christ. That is, by parallels, by theme, by similarity. Another way, however, is through antithesis, through contrast, through opposites. And that is what we have here in Jonah, in the person Jonah, as we see in this book of Jonah. Jonah, as we know, is a prophet. And as such, he was called by God to declare the word of God. And just because someone holds a divinely given office does not mean that he will fulfill it well, of course not perfectly. And we saw this time and again, didn't we, in the period of the judges with those men who were called by God to judge a people, and, not, uh, and most of them weren't, weren't good judges. We see the same thing with kings, the, the many men who were uh, called to lead the people. All of the ones in, in the northern kingdom were wicked, and only a smattering in the southern kingdom were, uh, were good, comparatively speaking. But over the next five Lord's Day evening services covering this book, we will consider Jonah as a prophet, a prophet in flight, that's this evening, a prophet in sin, a prophet in Sheol, a prophet on the rise, and a prophet in anger. At every step of the way, we will see the prophet, uppercase P prophet, the Christ, in contrast to this weak prophet, Jonah. And as we do, we will see how beautifully relevant this prophetic word is for us today. 
As I mentioned to you this morning, the main point for this evening service is that when the prophet flees, there is no hope of salvation for the world. Before considering the prophetic burden that Jonah carried, we must get our bearings here. Let's consider the prophet's context, consider his call, and consider his cost for disobedience. Consider his context here, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, we'll look at verse 2 in just a moment, but it's a stuff of scholarship to say that Jonah was merely myth, that he wasn't a man. Not all scholars, mind you, say this, but some in the past, some the present, rabbis and intellectuals will deny that Jonah was a real historical man. His life, after all, seemed too factual, or too fanciful, rather, to be factual. It seemed mythical, especially Jonah 2. I mean, how could this man be in the belly of a great fish? Now, we don't need to enter the weeds that would wrap about our head, but we can assert that when Jonah prayed in the great fish, weeds wrapped about my head, there was a real Jonah, there were real weeds, and there was a real head surrounded by those weeds. How do we know this? Well, God says so in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 27, we read of the historical Jeroboam II. Not the first Jeroboam, that wicked Jeroboam that was used by God to divide the kingdom of Israel into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But here we have another Jeroboam who was almost as evil as the first. But we see in this section of Scripture that he is reigning in Samaria, while a real Amaziah was in his 15th year in Judah, Jeroboam II had a very real 41-year reign of evil from 793 to 753 B.C. Graciously, God used even this evil king to bring about some measure of good for his people. Compassionately, God, through Jeroboam II, restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, as the text tells us. But how did God carry this out? The text doesn't give us all the details, but summarizes for us that it was through Jonah that God carried this out. So Jonah was good for something. He wasn't always fleeing from God. He was used by God, especially when the kingdom of Israel was at stake. Jonah from Gath-Hefer, which of course you know, is just three miles north of Nazareth, I forgot that fact. Thankful for commentaries, study Bibles. But Jonah, from this real place, Gath Heifer, was instrumental for Israel. God has always been committed to preserve his people. And again, as the text says, he, seeing the bitter affliction of Israel, used Jonah to restore part of Israel's land for their security. Jonah, now to make a clear connection to our text here, prophesied the expansion of the kingdom of Israel in the direction of Nineveh a cruel enemy nation that wanted Israel destroyed, wanted Israel gone. If Nineveh, the key city of Assyria, if Nineveh survives, then this kingdom of Israel, this expansion, is threatened. Remarkably, it didn't occur to Jonah that if Nineveh repented, there would be more, there'd be converts, there'd be a kingdom of Israel expanded even more through Assyria. What a joy that would be. 
And it is prophesied that there will be that joy. But Jonah was too nearsighted to see that, as we'll see as we keep going through the book. So God acknowledges, he knows that Jonah was a real man. God also in the New Testament mentions this. He, Jesus, drew from Jonah's life to point to Jesus' own death. We read about Jonah in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41. Jesus rebukes that sign-seeking generation. They were clamoring for signs. Give us more miracles. Dazzle us. Show us who you really are, even though we won't believe you when you show us. Jesus was not going to be roped into that, and so he said, you get, you get one sign. You get the sign of Jonah. Jonah's three-day existence in the fish, which points to Jesus' three-day death in the earth. So that's the context of Jonah, but consider his call. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so this man existed, and that at a very important time, a time to be used by God. So he has a call from God. God's call to Jonah was a clear call. There was no ambiguity at all in this call. Get up, go to that great Nineveh, and speak against its great evil. It's pretty simple. And this was was very important to God. And the proportion of Nineveh's evil was on the level of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 18, verse 20 of Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, The outcry is very great, and their sin is grave. And here, to Jonah, he says, Their evil has come up before me. Likewise, Ezra prays with shame, shame over his own nation of Israel, how sinful his own nation has been. He says in his prayer in Ezra 9, 6, Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Or in in Revelation 18, verse 5, God will speak of faithless Israel as fallen Babylon, whose, quote, sins are heaped high as heaven. When the report of sins has gone up to the holy throne of heaven, that's bad. Obviously, God knows all. But it's a metaphor to communicate how nasty things have gotten. It, how, how the sin travels from earth to the high heavens. So we have a, cl- a clear call from God, and this call was clear, and the people to whom Jonah was to prophesy were clear. He was going to prophesy to Nineveh. Now, God didn't have to detail the sins of Nineveh for Jonah. Jonah knew their sins well. He knew their evil to be great evil. He knew their pride to be unmatched. He had no problem giving a word of judgment to them. But as we'll see in future weeks, he hesitated. Or, more accurately, he disobeyed because of God's grace, because of God's compassion. He didn't want grace to win out. He didn't want the compassion of the Lord to, to change people. And so he fled. But before you can get to the good news, you have to proclaim the bad news, the great evil of that great nation. So Jonah was to be God's prophetic witness against national evil. 
Consider his cost of disobedience. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah then ignores that sound wisdom that is heard in many households in this country. Obey right away. Trust that you have something like that if you're a parent. Say to your children, obey right away. Delayed obedience is disobedience. You don't think about it, especially if you're very young. You just obey. Obey right away. Jonah does not obey right away. O. Palmer Robertson, just summarizing him, he says, while, while other 8th century prophets speak of the impending fall of Assyria, Jonah does his best to ensure that that happens. He wants Assyria to fall. And he's trying with all his might that that would be the case. Jonah gets here ahead of God's plan. Historically, we know that Assyria takes down Israel in 722 B.C., if there are two Old Testament dates that you, you've got to know, 722 B.C. is one of them, and 586 is the other, because that's when the southern kingdom is taken over by the Babylonians. 722, Assyria takes down the northern kingdoms, those northern tribes. And this is just 40 or 50 years after Jonah's message to Nineveh here, just a generation or so. So Jonah's message will lead this is ironic. It will lead to the sparing of a people that will, only a generation or so later, not spare Israel and will pick apart the northern kingdom of Israel. And it's sad. And that's primarily on account of Israel's sin against God. But Assyria sins likewise. Assyria sins in taking down Israel, God's prized possession. And you can read about that in Isaiah chapter 10. But because of the sin of Assyria, the Lord will prophesy Assyria's downfall through the prophet Nahum, who is the other prophet to the Ninevites. Did you know that? That there are two prophets to the Ninevites, Jonah and Nahum. And still don't know why this is the case, but for some reason in Jonah and Nahum, those are the only books that end with a question. And they're both Ninevites. I don't know what to make of it. Maybe nothing. But there you have it. And these Ninevites will go down in 612 by the Medes and the Babylonians. And so, it would make sense for Jonah, the Israelite nationalist, the anti-Assyrian, to disobey God, wouldn't it? It would make sense if you're thinking like him. He thought that he was doing Israel a favor by fleeing. He thought that he was doing his own kingdom a service by not, by not proclaiming Repentance by not proclaiming impending judgment upon a wicked nation. You can imagine him thinking this way. If I stay silent, or if I leave, they won't repent. And so they'll be overthrown. They'll be gone. Praise God, they'll be gone. The enemy will be gone. This is great news. The enemy scatters. There's a lot of stuff in the prophets and the Psalms about that. A lot of stuff in the Old Testament about that. I'm supposed to emphasize your justice, Lord, am I not? I'm supposed, to I'm supposed to preach their destruction, right? Yes and no. It is true here. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. 
But we, mis- well, we misunderstand if we think that God does not want the Ninevites to repent here. As we see later on in this book. It doesn't pay to disobey, as they say. But here, Jonah does pay, literally. He paid the fare for his travel to Tarshish, directly west and opposite of Nineveh. 2 Chronicles 9.21 says that a round trip from Israel to Tarshish took about three years. And when God commissions his prophets, he pays their way. He provides for them every step of the way. He feeds them. He feeds them miraculously even. You remember how he fed Elijah, the prophet. But here, because Jonah disobeys, Jonah takes upon himself the cost of his disobedience. God's not going to foot the bill for him to to flee from his presence. And so there's a cost also for Nineveh. Not just a cost for Jonah, but there's a cost for Nineveh. Have you thought about the cost for Nineveh if Jonah disobeys? Well, who cares about Nineveh, right? Jonah, Jonah doesn't care about Nineveh. But evidently, God does care about Nineveh. There's three costs for Jonah's disobedience. The first is that the nation does not see its evil. That Nineveh does not see its evil. The great nation does not see the great evil of this great nation against the great God. That is one of the costs of Jonah's disobedience. They don't see how wicked they really are, how unholy they really are, how they cannot stand before the holy judge of all the earth who will do right. They don't see their evil. The second cost is they don't see the remedy to the evil. If there's no bad news proclaimed, destruction is coming, then there can be no good news proclaimed as well. And so they don't see the remedy. They don't see their evil. They don't see the remedy for the evil. And if they don't see the remedy for the evil, if they don't see their own evil, then the third cost is they don't repent of their evil. The nation does not come to faith in God. The nation is denied a prophetic call to trust in the God of the nations. That's a serious threefold cost for Jonah's disobedience. Even though the prophet is uncaring, the prophet's God is not. He cares. He wants Jonah to proclaim the bad news to Nineveh that Nineveh might repent. Do you see how gracious that is? Do you see what an offer of forgiveness that is? The prophets say, Jeremiah 18, that if if the Lord pronounces destruction on a nation and that nation repents, the Lord will relent of the disaster that he says will happen. And that's what we have here. So the church must count the cost of her disobedience. The church is united to the groom. The groom is the prophet. But we are united to the prophet. So as the bride speaks only what is in accord with her husband, with her head, we likewise speak the truth. Like the mom who refuses to stray from her husband's wise words to their kids, The church says only what her Savior says, and she must speak. 
you're, if you have children, you know. You know that sometimes a, ch- a child will try to pit you against your spouse, try to pit one parent against the other, and soon enough they'll learn that you're on the same team, and it's a, a fool's errand to try to divide the two. That is how it ought to be when it comes to us, the church, the bride of Christ. We should not say anything different from what Christ has said in his word. The prophetic witness of the church is utterly necessary for the nations, for the world. The church is a witness against the evils of the world, and she must speak the truth. We must speak the truth. She cannot flee. And when I say she cannot flee, I mean you and I cannot flee. We cannot hold ourselves up in monasteries. We cannot withdraw aid from a dying nation. We must speak up. If the church rejects her role as a lampstand, who will fill it? Will the world fill that role? How can the world fill that role when the world is in darkness? When the world is caught up under the control of the evil one? When the world is blind? No. There is only one organization Only one institution, and that is the church. That is Christ's church, his bride. She must speak the words of her Savior, of her husband. Does the church love the world enough to point out the world's great evil? If you think that God doesn't, you're wrong. In fact, John 3 tells us exactly that God does love the world. And that's why he has sent his only begotten son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And that doesn't mean just a small group of people. Okay. I've already said quite a bit on that a couple Sundays ago. So hold off on that for another time. So the church, in union with her Savior, speaks against the nation's evils of the day. This is hard, and you might want to flee like Jonah fled. You might not want the nation to see its evil. You might want the nation to be destroyed. But our call in union with Christ the groom is to speak the truth. And I'm I'm thankful that our own denomination has, in her 50-year history, done this many times. And a few times has spoken against the U.S. government regarding the issue of abortion, said, this is a great evil. It is killing our nation. We are literally killing our nation. Do something about it. Or even recently, when the PCA spoke a prophetic word against the U.S. government for their allowing gender reassignment surgeries, the PCA says, no, this is a great evil. We are made in the image of God, and we're we're created male and female. And if you're male, you're always male. If you're female, you're always female. Let's not mutilate the body. These are precious image bearers. So the church has taken on that prophetic witness against the evils of the nation in which she resides. I was encouraged by watching a video of a pastor in Sanford. Some of you know him. We call him Thomas Boer, for that is his name. A few Sundays ago, after the Lord's Day service, he went to um, a building 
And in that building, the, uh, the owners were hosting a drag queen story hour. And he said, enough. He, he gave from the sidewalk. He was abiding by the laws. He, he gave a 10-minute proclamation of their evil and salvation in Christ alone. Called them to repent. Showed them their sin. And showed them the Savior who can save them from their sin. We need more of that boldness. We need more of that steadfastness to the Word of God, regardless of the consequences for our own lives. Let us count the cost for our disobedience if we fail to speak up. Consider the cost for for your own life personally if you fail to avail yourself of the Word speaking to your own heart. If you just go on sinning deliberately, if you just go on ignoring those besetting sins, and every single one of us has besetting sins. If you're on this side of heaven, you have besetting sins. And you must mortify them daily. You must not allow them to get a hold on you. You must suppress them every single day. You must fight the fight of faith to kill that sick sin and to look to Christ for living unto righteousness. Consider how consider the cost if you don't heed that call. Consider the cost if you forget that call for your own family, for your spouse, or for your children, if you just let one another run amok. Consider the cost for this church if you just let sin go on without being addressed. Consider the cost for your own employment, for the world, for this nation. We must, as Peter says, proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into light. This means proclaiming the great evil of the world that has gone up to God. And this means proclaiming the great good for the world that has come down from God in the person of Jesus Christ. We have reason to be bold. We have reason not to flee. We have reason to pay the consequences for our faithfulness to God. Consider the prophet's call, the call given to Jesus, the prophet of prophets. He was given a call similar to Jonah's call, but of course, much more expansive, much more extensive. You can hear the father saying to the son, Arise, O son, and go down, go down to earth. Go to that great world of ours and call out against its evil, for their evil has come up before me. Go, son, for the fullness of time has come. The call was clear. And how did the son respond? Give me a few days. No. Right away. Whereas our text says, but Jonah rose to flee. We know that of the Savior we can say, and the Son obeyed the Father. The Son allowed himself to be sent by the Father into the world. Jonah fled from the presence of God to get as far away from him as possible. But Jesus left the eternal presence of God to bring you and me as close to him as possible. You see that grace Jesus, the prophet, grew up in wisdom and favor with the Father. 
He was anointed by the Spirit to proclaim liberty to the captives, and he dropped hard truth bombs on the laps of many. He loved the world enough to expose their sin, to show them their sin, to set before them the perfect standard of righteousness of the Father, and to compare them to the law of God that revives the soul. He witnessed against their great evil. But he didn't stop there. He didn't simply say, you guys are awful. You're just the worst. And I'm out of here. He doesn't do that at all. He speaks of himself, of the great grace that is found in him alone. That's the prophet's call. Consider the prophet's cost of obedience. What did it cost the son for his obedience? We saw what it cost Jonah for his disobedience. But does obedience cost us sometimes? Of course. I finished reading just a couple days ago Ned Stonehouse's biography on J. Gresham Machen. 600 pages of his colleague. And every page was awesome. Machen was a great man, a tender-hearted man. And you'll get to see some of that in an illustration next week in the morning. But his fidelity to Christianity, his fidelity to the Word of God, cost him. It cost him his own ministerial credentials. Did you know that? He was defrocked. That hurts a minister. To no longer be a minister, to no longer be ordained, That hurts him, and that cost him significantly. Maybe it was comforting for him to know that this was becoming an apostate denomination. But still, he loved that denomination and stuck with it until he had to be kicked out. All because he wanted the true gospel to be proclaimed. He didn't want people messing around with the fundamentals, messing around with what Scripture truly says about Scripture, about God, about man, about sin, about the church, about salvation, about the virgin birth, so easily dismissed today, fundamental to the Christian faith. And it cost him. But what about Christ? What about what it cost him for his obedience We see that when the prophet flees, there is no hope of salvation for the world. But what if the prophet doesn't flee? What if the prophet stays, stays and fights? What if the prophet is firm in his calling? Well, then what? Well, then there is all the hope possible for the world. This hope lies in Jesus fulfilling his calling which was more than speaking words of impending judgment. He returned to his Father's presence because of his life's work on earth for the world. Jesus paid the price for the disobedient. The wages of sin is death. He took upon himself the cost of our disobedience. He who knew no sin was made to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was made to be sin 
so that you and I would be made to be righteous. He took upon himself that penalty for our sin. He didn't follow Jonah and ask to be thrown into the waters of creation to pacify the Lord, but he did allow himself to suffer the baptismal waters of the wrath of God upon the cross. The church must likewise count the cost of the prophet's obedience. Spend time this week, this month, this this year, your whole lives, counting the cost of Jesus' life of obedience and giving him all the praise for it. Machen's final words to John Murray through a telegram were, thank God for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. That is to say, thank God for Jesus actively obeying the Father's law in every single way. There is no hope apart from that perfect obedience that the Son demonstrates. Consider how the Son kept the law as a youth. Consider how he obeyed his earthly parents and especially his heavenly Father in all things. Consider how he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Consider how he faithfully proclaimed the Father's will despite all that pushback, despite all of that hatred. Man, that had to be hard. You're on the side of truth. You are the truth, uppercase T, truth. And people don't hear it. And people hate you for it. That must have been very difficult. Consider how he would sweat drops of blood in agony over the impending cross, but still he had set his face toward Jerusalem and no one was going to redirect him. Consider how he allowed his friends to betray him, to leave him, and his enemies to blaspheme him, the pure, holy name Messiah. Consider how he allowed them to put on his head a crown of thorns, how he allowed them to nail him to the cross. Consider how he took upon himself the fullness of the Father's wrath against all our sin that for millennia had gone up to him. Consider how he gave up his spirit, commending it to the Father on our behalf. Oh, dear ones, consider the cost of the prophet's obedience. When the prophet stays and fights on the cross, his prophetic word speaks a better word than Abel's, for it sprinkles the nations clean. Let's pray. Our beautiful God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken a word better than the blood of Abel here through this inspired word, a prophetic word, a word from the Spirit's anointed prophet, Jesus Christ. Cause us to see our sin. Give us boldness to address it by the power of the Spirit. Help us to see and approach in truth and love gently but boldly, the sins of others, that we might also show them the way of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.